Blog Talk Radio.
everyone, and welcome. Thank you, thank you, thank you for tuning in. This is T. Love, your host here at Energy Awareness Radio. I am an energy and certified sound therapist with a private practice in Sussex County, New Jersey, where we are streaming to you live as we do every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Now, our chat room is open, so feel free to join the discussion. And remember that we do keep an eye on the chat room. So if you have a question, go ahead and post it, and we'll do our best to get your question on air. As an alternative, for those of you who are on the go and you cannot continue to listen online, please call us directly by dialing 347-202-0227. And that way you can listen via your telephone, or please, if you are driving about, please use your Bluetooth. Before we begin, I'd like to thank my friends at AdRunner for spreading the word about Energy Awareness Radio. You hear me talk about them all the time. They do a great job with digital advertising. You can go to their site, adrunner.co. That's A-D-R-U-N-N-E-R dot C-O to, to check out and see more about it. And for those of you inquiring about my CD, Imagine, it's available for sale on my website, quantumwellness.org. It consists of four tracks of 70 minutes of quartz crystal singing bowl healing music that was recorded without any digital engineering or remastering whatsoever. So it's very organic in that what you hear on the CD is exactly what you would hear if you attended one of my live concerts. And now this CD has received some really impressive feedback. So, you know, I urge you to go to the site, scroll down, learn a little bit more about it, and see if it's something that you feel may benefit you. We have a very special guest tonight. He has honored us here before at Energy Awareness Radio to discuss his previous bestseller, A Book of Miracles. That was on January 18, 2012, and he's graciously come back to discuss his newest book, The Art of Healing. That's right. My guest is Dr. Bernie Siegel, who retired from surgical practice in 1989 to dedicate himself to humanizing the medical establishment and empowering patients to induce their own healing. He is a sought-after speaker on patient and caregiver issues, and he's the founder of Exceptional Cancer Patients, teaching patients to self-induce healings. So let's welcome him now. Good evening, Bernie. Thank you so much for coming on again. I'm so excited and thrilled that you're here. How are you being this evening? (laughs) Thank you, Pete. Very good. And, you know, one of the things I have to say, all these thoughts and stories enter my head. Many years ago, after working with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on my issues, I started playing music in the operating rooms and, Mm. you know, and and talking to patients under anesthesia, too. And the anesthesiologist, as well as everybody else, thought, he's crazy. They're, you know, unconscious. What's the point of all this? But... What they began to see was that the patients reacted to what I said and that the music affected everybody in the operating room, not just the patients. Because I may add, Mm -hmm. this goes back a lot of years, as you said, about my retirement. I mean, some of the anesthetic gases are explosive gases. And so I walk in with a tape recorder and they're telling me, you're an explosion hazard. We don't want an electric appliance plugged in. But within a week, everybody felt so much better that they stopped complaining about the danger. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, a few months go by, and all the operating rooms are filled with boomboxes playing music. And I may add, this was not distracting music, which some people used, but music that was meant to help us all heal 
Even with kids, right. I'd play nursery rhymes. And they, everybody in the operating room would become a child again, you know, talking mm-hmm. about their childhood, what that meant to them. And I may add another study. When you play music or read a certain story while a woman is pregnant, in other words, if she plays a certain song or reads a certain story every day, month after month, then the child is born. It becomes agitated. You play the music or read the story that they heard while in the uterus, and they calm right down. You play a different song or read a different story, and it has no effect on them. So it's just fascinating seeing all this. And 30 years later, one of the doctors at Yale did a study, and he found that if you played music during the operation, the patient awoke with less pain, the operation finished sooner, and fewer drugs were needed to anesthetize the patient. And I can tell I you that, yeah, that the patients also carried the memory with them because I would say at the end of every operation, you will wake up comfortable, thirsty, and hungry. And mm. patients came into the office, and they were angry at me. I said, what are you upset with me for? We're gaining weight. I said, <laughs> why? Well, your nurse told me that you say when we're waking up, we'll finish everything, you know, on our plate. (laughs) I was thinking of the nausea after anesthesia, you know, but it carried on to their home. And so I started saying, you won't finish everything on your plate, you know. (laughs) You'll wake up hungry, but you won't finish everything. And then they stopped complaining. But it just shows how these messages, you know, rhythms are all a part of, our life and uh, communicate with our mind and therefore with our bodies. Absolutely. I know that um, a, a woman I know when she was having her baby watched all my children every single day and the music at the start it was playing every single day. She watched right. the show and after her baby was born, when the baby would, the baby would look around when that music came on constantly. Yeah. So when the baby would cry, she'd, she taped it and she played it and the baby would go to sleep. It was crazy. And, but it, it, absolutely, you're right. Oh, yeah. You know? You reminded me <laughs> of another story. Somebody, a young woman who had cancer, was in our support group. A few years later, she's pregnant. And I got a phone call because the family said she's in premature labor. They're afraid she's going to have a miscarriage. And, oh, you know, would you come and see her in the hospital? I went up to the hospital and walked into the room. And it was a panic room, if you know what I mean. Everybody there was a nervous wreck. Mm. She's going to, you know, have uh, a uh, stillborn and it's so premature. Mm. And I mean, everybody, all you heard was the terrible news and everybody's panic. So I said to everybody, get out of the room. Everyone, get out of here. And they all left, thank God. <laughs> and then I put on some quiet music and I did an imagery with her in which we visualized the uterus and calmed it down and got it to relax and stop contracting and so forth and so on. Within about five or ten minutes, the labor stopped. And the nice part is she went on to have a healthy young male, and I got a phone call. Bernie, yes, we just had a son, and we're naming him after you. But we're Irish, so his name is Brady. So Brady (laughs) was the Irish Bernie was born. But it it just, again, showed what the panic did to her and what the quiet music and, you know, a guided imagery voice 
that is speaking to her did because you know whether it's being labor or or having cancer therapy that because it always amazes me how powerful the mind is when doctors made mistakes i mean not their fault in a sense but like a radiation machine is repaired after the repair they didn't put the radioactive material back in well the doctor doesn't know this so he's treating people for a month then he does his routine mm. inspection, you know, like taking your car in for a checkup. And he realizes, oh, my God, I haven't treated anybody. So he tells me this because he was feeling so terrible. I said, wait a minute. You don't understand what you said. <laughs> he said, I'm telling you I feel awful. I said, excuse me. You're not an idiot. So if you weren't treating anybody, you would have realized it. But I said, you must have had people with side effects of what they thought they were receiving and shrinking tumors because they thought they were being treated. And I always remember his eyes almost popped out of his head because he said, oh, my mm-hmm. God, you're right. And that's mm-hmm. the part, you see, that is so fascinating. People think they're receiving treatment and act as if they are. And that's also why doctors need to know how to talk to patients. You know, I always call it deceiving people into health. I mean, to induce positive effects, not all the things, you know, I always say, the commercials on television. Why would you take a pill for your headache if it's going to sterilize you, kill your liver, give you a heart attack, may cause cancer? You know what I mean? When they tell you all the things that could go wrong, who wants it? And if you think about it the other way, supposing they told you all that first so they don't get sued, you see, then you're never going to have any good effects of the treatment. And we have to know how to talk to people and how to communicate with them. Well, it's very interesting, this book that you've written. I love all your Mm. books, but this one I just found, you know, The Art of Healing. Great play on words, by the way. Uh, You know, it's, I I don't know, you took a class from Elizabeth Kugler-Ross, and that class focused on the use of crayon drawings as part of the healing process. And you, that kind of really changed the way we understand medicine and healing. And you have used what you learned in your practice ever since. So how did you incorporate this and and start to work with patients doing that? Well, first of all, I was amazed at how much she knew about my life from an outdoor scene I drew from my imagination. It's something I made up. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like you're having a guided imagery to relax, so you make up a place to go for a walk. And that's basically what I was drawing. And some of her questions, so people understand, she looked at my page and said, Bernie, What are you covering up? And it was all my feelings as a doctor. That's why I went there. And I said, why are you asking? She said, Bernie, this is a white piece of paper. You made a mountain with snow on it, but you picked up a white crayon and added a layer. The page is already white. So what are you covering Mm. up? And then 11. Oh, yeah, I've been doing this work 11 months, meaning running support groups. So she had all these questions and everything was meaningful. And, you know, what it said to me is this is real. I mean, this is how Mm -hmm. our unconscious, our body speaks to us. All the stored memories that are in us can come forth in that way. So I went to the hospital with a box of crayons. And I'd say to all my patients, draw a picture of yourself. Um, And in the support groups, draw yourself, your disease, your treatment, your immune system, you know, all these things. Um, Your home and family, it didn't matter, whatever we were working on. And I thought I was discovering incredible things that nobody knew. You know, it's this other world I was in with this. When I sent it to medical journals, it came back. Interesting, but not appropriate for a medical journal. (laughs) I thought, that's ridiculous. But anyway, I'll send them to where it's appropriate, you know, psychology journals. They mailed Mm -hmm. it back again. 
it's, inter- it's appropriate, but it's not interesting. We know all this. That really upset me. You know, to think yeah. that in all my years of training, nobody even discussed this issue of dreams and drawings and things of that sort. And I mean it. It, it. I mean, just to make it simple so people understand, if you say draw your treatment and you drew the devil giving you poison as your doctor giving you your chemotherapy, you are going to have a lot of trouble. See? Mm-hmm. And other people will mm-hmm. be sitting in, in the palm of God's hands with the surgeon or doctor you know, embracing them and love and God are in the operating room and flowers are growing and the surgeon isn't covered with a mask. I mean, it's just, you know, and then other people say, oh, the operating room, they're in a black box with nobody taking care of them. Now, I can change that by getting, I mean, I can tell them, then don't have an operation if you don't want it, or change your image. In other words, picture yourself going to the hospital, having surgery, doing beautifully, and do that four or five times a day. Well, a week later, you get a gorgeous picture. And I know they're not going to have all the pain and complications that they would have had if they went to that, you know, empty black box where nobody's taking care of you. And so, again, I found that if I could help people become a unit, let's put it that way, that the intuitive wisdom, the unconscious wisdom and their intellect, I wanted them both to agree so they wouldn't have any inner conflict. Because the other side of the coin, there are people who say, I don't want that medical treatment and draw a beautiful picture of it. And I say, you know, it's Mm. good for you, but you have fears about it. And then we can deal with those fears. So when there's agreement within the person, they have far fewer problems with the treatment, no matter what it is, Um, you know, from eating vegetables to having an operation. And it was amazing because the nurses would always say to me, your patients are refusing pain medication. I said, did it ever occur to you that they're not hurting? Because that seems unbelievable to make you know, an incision in somebody's abdomen and that they wake up and say, I'm, I'm a little sore, but I don't need any medication. But again, it was where that person was coming from, you know, how mm-hmm. they viewed the surgery, how they felt about me as well as themselves, and uh, the enormous difference it made. And I see this too when you talk about what the self-induced healing, a term that came out of Solzhenitsyn's book, Cancer Ward, I mean, that he describes it as the symbol of the healing is a rainbow-colored butterfly. See, the butterfly is transformation, the rainbow is life in order, because literally every color represents an emotion, like yellow is energy, green is a natural, healthy color, purple is spiritual. So the colors people chose told me something about Again, their beliefs, um, as well as whether their life's in order. And I show many of these pictures uh, in the book, some from children, where you have all the colors, but it's like a tangled mass. And what kind of a life is that? And you need the person to help with the interpretation. It's not me telling them. It's me bringing out what's within them because of their picture. Because I always laugh when one boy came in to my office and the whole picture was in black. And I thought, oh, boy, what's going on in his home? And I said to him, you know, the whole drawing's in black. What's going on? He said, nothing's going on. I have two older brothers. That's the only crayon they give me. So, again, (laughs) you know, I thought, okay, you're all right. But you need to know that, if you know what I mean, to interpret it. So it's a lot easier to sit with somebody and their drawing than to have them send it by an email. And then I have to send out questions. 
um, about things, you know, from numbers to colors to because, you know, they're it's like their house might be uh, or their car might be black or the house red. And, you know, I have to know that it isn't representing an emotion. That's the color of my clothes or my house or, you know, or I'm deaf. That's why I don't have ears, that type of thing. But you can mm-hmm. predict people's illnesses from how they draw themselves. Um, I mean, and, and this is not just me saying this. This is done by psychiatrists studying medical students, had them draw pictures, fill out personality profiles, and you could predict what diseases they were going to get. And it's not blaming people, because uh, a lot of doctors would say to me, you're blaming your patients. I said, what are you talking about? Well, you're talking to them about their life as if they caused their illness. I say, no. I'm talking about what could make them vulnerable now, you see. So, you see, again, it's taken so many years to do studies, but loneliness affects the genes which control immune function. So somebody who's lonely is far more likely to get any disease, you know, because they're more mm-hmm. vulnerable to them at that moment, just as laughter has yeah. the opposite effect. I mean, cancer patients who laugh for no apparent reason, this was another study, lived longer than another group that was the control group and wasn't told to laugh five times a day for no reason. And I always say to people, next time you're depressed, fearful, whatever, laugh and watch the change it makes in you, even though there's no reason to laugh, but what it does to you, you know, it feels, you will feel different. And it's the chemistry. Because when you study actors and say, here's a script and it's a comedy, and then here's a script, and it's a murder and a tragedy. Their blood tests are altered by the script they're reading. And remember, that isn't their life. They're just reading words. But immune right. function goes up when you're you know, in a humorous setting and happy, and the stress hormone levels go down. And the opposite happens when you're dealing with the stress. I always summarize it. Think of Monday morning. We have more heart attacks, strokes, suicides, and illnesses on Monday morning because of how people are feeling on that day. Very true. And, you know, it all comes down to being every, all of the emotions that are positive, you know, this positive psychology right now, which mm. is out there and becoming more and more accepted, and just staying positive and, and living from a place of positivity and gratitude. Right. Huge when you do that, you know. I, I loved in your book where you said one of the things was, instead of saying I need to or I should, say, you know, like pay the bills, say, I get to pay the bills. And I laughed at that because when I write out my bills on the bill, uh, that I, the part that I keep, I write, thank you for the money. <laughs> right. File it away. Yeah. <laughs> because, it, you know. <laughs> you know, I, I always try to get across to people. For me, the best therapist is the fact that I'm mortal. You know what I mean? I'm here for a limited time. So right. I don't let others make me unhappy, if you know what I mean. I don't blame mm-hmm. them uh, and say, oh, look what they did. Look how they're acting. Why don't they? That's, I decide what I think. And so right. I enjoy my lifetime, uh, and I don't let them you know, make me resentful for the next 10 years over how they treated me. And that includes, for many people, their parents you know, and other authority figures in their life, because the opposite of love is indifference, rejection, and abuse. And so mm-hmm. if they were brought up with that, yeah, you could spend your life bitter and resentful. I mean, something I read today, um, just to make that point, this, this woman is still complaining about her mother. And a therapist, uh, you know, is talking to her. 
And she says, oh, my mother's dead. She's been dead for like 30 years. Well, then why are you still angry and resenting, <laughs> you know, your mother? What good is that doing? But he told her, let's see. Here, here, this is what he said. He suggested to her that she write her mother a letter explaining the anger, resentment, and frustration she experienced her while her mother was alive, much of which she was still experiencing. After writing the letter, she was to read it more than once, and whenever she left, she felt ready for a release, have a ritual to burn the letter. And the woman did that. And the physical complaints that she had, because there were other things that this therapist saw with her back and her hands, they began to resolve. Mm-hmm. You know, she could stand up straighter. Her fingers were more mobile. Um, and eventually she burns the letter and is free of that past. And I may add the word anger to me. There is healthy anger. You know, if I'm not treated with respect, I speak up. I don't mm-hmm. You know, I don't hate the other person. I'll say I love you. I don't like how you're treating me. Um, but there is appropriate anger. So if you're not treated yes. with respect, speak up. But, you know, when you carry the resentment, bitterness, uh, it's just destroying you. I mean, Alice Miller said it very well. She was talking about her childhood. Our childhood is stored up in our body. And then the paragraph ends with, and someday the body will present its bill. See? Mm, that's what we have to remember if we don't respond to it see if we take pills get drunk eat you know try to quiet our feelings down by getting some addiction to reward ourselves it doesn't work because the pain is still in there and Mm -hmm. to give you an example of, of a drawing this one isn't in the book but there is one you know with the similar information um a doctor friend called me. He said he was working with this woman, or she was working with this woman, who had pelvic problems. And no matter how many doctors she had seen, nobody could help her. I mean, nothing worked. I just said over the phone, hey, tell her to draw a picture and send it to me. I didn't even say what. I don't know. It just spontaneously popped out of me. A few days later, I get a drawing emailed to me. It's an enormous heart, like a Valentine heart. But down mm-hmm. the middle, it's cracked open, and 21 drops of blood were leaking out of it. I said to him, ask her what happened when she was 21. And a couple of days later, I got this email back, I mean, a full page of sexual abuse that had happened Mm. when she was 21. See, now it's out, if you know what I mean. It's not just Mm -hmm. stored in her. And they can work on it, deal with it, and I think now she'll respond to therapy because the problem has been brought forth. And another one, I agree, report, yeah. You know, a reporter, this one's in the book, who came to see me. I could tell she was to interview me for a magazine, that she was very intellectual, not into what I was doing. And uh, I thought, I've got to, you know, make a change in her. So I said, draw me a picture. I'll finish up with patients, and then we'll sit and talk. And she came in, handed me the picture. Her head was quite large. And I said, hmm, I was right about, you know, she does a lot of thinking and not feeling. But behind her Mm -hmm. was a clock with one hand pointed at 12. So I thought, I'm not going to ask her why 12 is important. I'll really try to shake her up. So I took a chance. I said, (laughs) what happened when you were 12 years old? She said, I don't like deadlines. I said, excuse me, there's only one hand on the clock. What happened when you were 12? And then she burst into tears and told me a story. See, and the whole oh, my God. It's changed, yeah. 
And mm. those are the things that I've seen. And Jung, Carl Jung talked about that years ago, that um, mm-hmm. numbers, he said, have quantity and meaning discovered and invented. And the meaning relates to what's going on in your life. I mean, I noticed it happening, too, because my wife would help me, you know, at workshops and interpret people's drawings. And for some reason, she started asking people, you know, like they'd make a path with 57 bricks. How about 57? Oh, I was born in mm-hmm. 1957. And, you know, they would talk about problems, uh, genetic problems they were born with and other things. And, you know, or how many rays of sunshine. Yeah, a, a depressed neighbor getting a divorce that picture's in the book she's headed downhill the sun is behind her with four rays i said why the four rays of sunshine oh those are my four kids they're you know helping me get through this and those are the things that are so fascinating including knowing the future you know that that we can put in what job we'll be at, what college we should go to, who we should marry, uh, what treatment to take, all kinds of things, because on the page there's past, present, and future. And um, it's unconscious, but it's within us. And again, it comes forth through the images and uh, reveals itself and helps guide people. See, when the people are drawing these pictures, though, in some cases, if they put 57 bricks or 21 drops of blood, they don't necessarily count them. They're just doing it, and it's, it's no, subconsciously coming right. forward, right? Yeah. 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 They yeah. are not counting them. They just do it, and they're not even thinking of it at all. Uh, you know, like mm. I made 11 trees, and when she said, why 11, that immediately popped into my head. I've been doing this 11 months. I mean, I didn't oh. stop to think, what could 11 mean? That just shot out of me because as soon as she said the word 11 boom you know that's what it meant to me and uh, so again it's it's a spontaneous you know response from people and sometimes it could be not just personal like every religion has seven days in the week Mm -hmm. but different numbers of days in a month so sometimes the number eight can represent a new beginning you see Mm -hmm. and so the person doesn't think of it personally but I'll say to them, mm, there are eight. That could be a good sign, you know, that it's a new beginning in your life. Um, right. And, uh, and, you know, the Trinity. Well, even think about this on our television screens. You know, what do you put your channel on? You set it on three. Uh, right. And then you, yeah. Why three? You know what I mean? Who picked Creation. That? <laughs> yeah. And I really think it relates back to the symbolism of the three you know, the the Holy Trinity, and that's not an right. accident. Or even there were 12 disciples. Why do we sell things by the dozen? You know, it, right. it, it just really gets interesting when you look at life and think, why, you know, are we involved in these certain numbers? Because they do have meaning. Sure. I mean, everything is based on numbers anyway. The You know, Pythagoras explained all that to us yep. so that we know that Absolutely. the universe is really number-based, you know. It's right. so fascinating. And your, the pictures in your book, I loved that you gave each picture a definition of what it was, a meaning. You actually interpreted the pictures in the book so people can see it. Yes. And, and as I was reading it, I realized, I know that um, you had people draw pictures, and then you might have them draw pictures a little bit later. The fact that they knew what the interpretation was the first time, you know, they didn't know, they drew the picture right. and you interpreted it and told them. Then they draw another one. Are they now thinking more consciously of what they're drawing and the numbers to use and things yes, like that? Or do they just 
Okay. I mean, they're, they're thinking, but think about this, okay? I'm the guy teaching it. Right. I have drawn pictures and couldn't believe what was in the picture when I looked at it later. So what I okay. tell people to do is draw the picture, look at it tomorrow. You will then yep. see things you didn't realize was there. I mean, a simple example, I drew a picture of our family. You know, we're all in a group. Everybody's drawing their home and family. And I, we have five kids. I want everybody to know we're a wonderful, happy family, so we'll all be holding hands, you know, and touching each other. <laughs> when I looked at the picture I drew, one of our sons, who was driving us nuts at the time, <laughs> was not touching a brother on either side. See, that's oh, the part. I looked at that. I thought, wow, how did that happen? Because I was consciously thinking, I want this to mm-hmm. look wonderful, you know, um, and it didn't happen. So I learned to draw a picture of myself every month, you know, like part of a, a journal, you know, or a diary. Mm-hmm. And, I, yeah, every month I'd look different depending on what was going on. You know, you might have big shoulders one month if you're carrying things or, you know, or you could not have ears because you don't want to hear something. It just it was amazing um, how it changed, even though I was trying to draw the right picture, uh, you know, each time. But as I say, you have to look at it as if somebody else drew it the next day. Then you see yeah, the interesting Yeah, that's one of the prescriptions in your book. Yeah. It's one of the prescriptions in your book to do that, which I like. You've got these RX, that, you know, it's a prescription yeah. at the end of each chapter, I guess. And they're very, very interesting. They're very interesting to do. I didn't, uh, I didn't realize until I was reading them and, you know, how it can really change because it made me think, wow, when you go into a museum now and look at art, you mm-hmm. must look at it totally differently. I know I will now. Right. You see, what else is, you're an interesting person. Because you've used that word. I see it's what's within you, whether you're going to a museum or you say, you know, what do I think of Bernie Siegel and this interview or his books? I look for people, and this is not ego, I'll explain it. I look for people who think I'm inspiring and interesting and, you know, wonderful and, and spiritual and caring and whatever. The more nice things they say about me, I know those things are within them. And I consider myself uh, the life coach. You see, I'm bringing out what is within you. Because just as yeah. you said, if you and I went to a movie and you loved it and I thought it stunk, what's different? Us, not the movie. You know what I mean? Right, exactly. It's my reaction to it, yeah. So I look for people who have that positive reaction because I know they're going to show up for practice, if you know what I mean, and work at mm-hmm. changing themselves and doing those things, yeah. And I always say to people, you look at how you react to the rest of the world. If you think the rest of the world is filled with wonderful people and life is an opportunity, you know, you realize you have an opportunity and you're a wonderful person. But if the world is filled with nasty, irritable, selfish people, I think you got a problem and you're projecting it right. onto other people. So, you know, learn from your reaction to others about yourself. And, you know, and have the courage to do that. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, I know that um, I, I had someone come in and, and they were talking to me and she said, oh, I know you're angry with me. And I said, no, I'm not angry. I, I, I just, I, I thought I explained it and it didn't come through the way it was supposed to. And, you know, and I was, I really was kind of angry, but I didn't want to say that to her. And she says, so you don't love me? And I said, no, I love you, 
but today I love you over there. <laughs> she was like, what? Yeah. And I said, I love you over there, just not here, just over there, okay? Today I love you over there. And she thought that was hysterical, and I thought it's the only way I can, I could deal well, with it. At that one moment, of our kids, you know? <laughs> I grew up in a big family, so noise mm-hmm. and anger were not anything anybody got upset about. You know what I mean? If, right. if you wanted attention, you had to speak up. You had to make noise. You had to let people know. <laughs> And and as a matter of fact, oh boy, when I my wife was an only child, see, so she said to me, "You have an incredibly noisy family." This is when we were dating. <laughs> I said, "What are you talking about? My family's noisy." She said, "Watch." And we were going to a family party, and she opened the door to the house and said, "Now just stay oh here God. a minute." And the noise that came billowing out, I looked at her. I said, "You're right," but to me, it. It was never noise, if you know what I mean. It was just people. Mm-hmm. But one of our kids came to me. I think I mentioned we have five of them. And um, yes. he said to me, are you getting a divorce? I said, what are you talking mm-hmm. about? I'm sitting here reading a newspaper. Why ask that? He said, because you yell a lot. I said, <laughs> if I don't like what's going on or how I'm being treated, I make noise. So you know how I feel. But I love mm-hmm. you, mother, and I love all of you. And he said, okay, and walked away. But he told me later, he asked that because the neighbors were getting a divorce and they had yelled a lot at each other. But I made it very clear to our kids that anger and love can go together. You know, and I try to say that to patients too. Don't go into the hospital and listen to somebody call you a room number or, you know, by your disease. You want to be a person and you can Mm -hmm. say something to them that you want to be treated with respect as a human being, that you don't want to be room 243. Um, you want to be a person and be treated as a person, not just as some disease entity. And that's true across the board for everything. You know, you just don't want to be, you know, room 243 window, room 243 door. You want to, right. you need to be the person because it's more uh, sensitive to you. It's more personal. You also advise your patients, this was interesting too, to record their dreams because they can mm. be very telling and they speak to us and give us a whole lot of useful information if we choose to be aware and acknowledge yeah. them. Yeah. Is that why you tell your patients to record their dreams so that they can become more yeah, aware they and get acknowledge know, what's going on? Right. For two reasons. One is that if they're willing to, to dream and to see images and to record them, it, I call it taking the lid off the unconscious. It like lets your unconscious know, hey, I'm ready. I want to learn. So let me dream. I mean, for me, mm-hmm. I dream so much that, and I don't mean they're all, you know, tragic or meaningful. I mean, some are just dreams related. You know, it's like going to the movie even while you're sleeping. You know, I'm seeing things right. and learning. Uh, and sometimes they are very meaningful. When I was sick and having a symptom that could have been due to cancer, in my dream, I was in a cancer support group and everybody was introducing themselves. When mm-hmm. I was about to say who I was, they said, yeah, but you don't have cancer. I mean, I woke up knowing mm-hmm. I didn't have cancer. And then I can tell yep. you dreams where people are told you have a lump in your breast, go to the hospital. In that book of miracles, this one lady woke up, felt her breast, she's got a lump, it's diagnosed as cancer, and the doctor who comes into the room is the person who appeared in her dream and told her to go to the hospital. Now, oh my she doesn't show that person. Yeah, it's just amazing. And I had another lady say, I had a dream last night, a white cat named Miracle came up to me and said, this is the chemotherapy you should have. 
And I wrote it all down, and I told my doctor that's how I want my cancer treated. And, of course, she responded and did beautifully. Now, yep. you'd say, how do things like that happen? But if you're open, see, if your mind is quiet mm-hmm. and you're not, you know, frantically worrying about the cancer, or then it comes through to you, and the wisdom is there, and it helps you make the right decisions and get help when you need it and not worry when, you know, it isn't anything. It's amazing. Um, it is. It's, it's all energy. It's intuitive and it, it wisdom that communicates. Yeah. Yes. And kids have less mm-hmm. trouble because they're thinking less, if you know what I mean. They don't have trouble drawing mm-hmm. a picture saying, I'm not an artist. Um, that's why one of the books I mentioned uh, by Susan Bach, who helped me learn more about this. She's a Jungian therapist who was in London and knew Carl Jung. And, yeah, one of her comments to me when I would talk to her about my seeing the anatomy in drawings and how people's bodies were, were drawn, even though they didn't know they were showing me what was in their body. She said, oh, yes, Jung was fascinated by the somatic aspects. I said, that's because he knew anatomy. You don't. So I used to bring her pictures and show her those things. Um, but she drew, her book was called um, Life Paints Its Own Span, and it, it is filled with drawings by children, you see, who have no problem, as I said, drawing, but how they related, knowing when their treatment was right, revealing when they were going to die. I mean, there's one drawing in there, a oh, sweet little girl named Amber, who's four years old, had extensive cancer, and her mother had tried everything to help her. And then one day, walked into Amber's room, and she had drawn a purple balloon, see, a spiritual color with her name in it, draped in black at the top of the page. But around mm-hmm. it were all these colorful dots, like you know, almost like a rainbow. I mean, it wasn't in order, but just all these colors all around it. And I thought, that's crazy. I mean, it looks like she's ready to go out of the picture to die. And then what yeah. was fascinating, at the bottom of the page, there's a child's face crying in red, I mean, in yellow and green. And I thought, that doesn't make sense. You know, if those are healthy, natural colors. So... I said to her, who's this, you know, crying? Is that you? She said, no, that's the child in the next room crying. Now, that fascinated me. She switches colors when she draws the child in the next room. But I said to her Hmm. mother, take her home and love her. She's really ready to go, you know, enough of the hospitals and treatment. And her mother, Patty, took her home. And a couple of weeks go by, she calls me, Bernie. Today's my birthday. Amber woke up and said, Mom, I'm dying today as a gift to you to free you from all the trouble. And mm. then when I counted the dots around the, the uh, balloon, you know, with her name in it, oh um, yep. those were the days left in her life. And that oh picture, I mean, her mother gave me as a gift. It's hanging in our house. Uh, and that was just, yeah. you see, it gave the mother something. I mean, Amber became her teacher. I mean, she wrote... Yeah. several books, uh, you know, because of what Amber taught her about life and everything else. And the kids are. I mean, one of our kids years ago when he was seven, see, the intuition, his leg hurts. I tell him, take a hot bath. He's a seven-year-old, so <laughs> bump leg. He comes to me, he says, I need an x-ray. You know, not a hot bath. I need an x-ray. I said, what are you talking about? You don't know anything about x-rays. You probably bruised your leg. I need an x-ray. We took an x-ray, and he had a tumor. See? Now, oh my that's not a coincidence. You know, if a seven-year-old says, no, I need an x-ray, he knew something. 
And yeah. I, I assumed because of the look of it that it was cancer and, you know, have his leg amputated, probably die of it. And oh, I was feeling so tragic because, mm-hmm. you know, of my stupidity, you know, telling him to take a bath instead of getting an x-ray. But anyway, the day after we learned that he had a bone tumor, <clears throat> he came to me because I tried to explain to the family what's going to happen. And he mm-hmm. said, Dad, can I talk to you? I said, sure, what is it? You're handling this poorly. That's a 70-year-old, <laughs> okay? And then he gave me a therapeutic lecture. Dad, we would like to go outside and play. You want us in our rooms depressed. <laughs> you know, and it, it, I mean, it was just so amazing and beautiful to have a seven-year-old teach you about life. And I have to add, fortunately, he had a very rare and very painful type of benign tumor. So it was removed and he was okay. But I never forget, you know, I I just picture him all the time walking into my office and saying, can I talk to you for a minute? And, Mm -hmm. you know, straightening out my life. And and that's the thing I see with patients, too. Um, When they get their life in order, see, when they switch to a life they can love, and they mm-hmm. love their body, that's when the self-healing occurs. I mean, mm-hmm. I, it's hard for me not to keep just one more little story. Then I don't know if you have another question, but this is a fellow, um, I mean, two people I knew who were told they had a few months to live. One bought a house on the ocean in Florida. He was a millionaire, and his wife said, look, you wanted a house, get it, and sit, listen to Bernie's tapes, meditate. Instead of dying in two months, he lived five and a half years. Another was a gentleman who went to die in Colorado. I said, why are you going to Colorado? Oh, it's so beautiful in the mountains. I want to die there. I say to the family, call me when he dies. I'll come to the funeral. I feel very close to him. The months go by. A year goes by. No phone call. I was really very upset with the family for ignoring my feelings. So I called Mm -hmm. them up, quite angry at them. And he answered the phone. I said, hello, what's going on? He said, it was so beautiful here, I forgot to die. Those are the exact words. Now, the thing I get a kick out of, every time I tell that story in Colorado, the reaction is, why did it help him to come here? (laughs) And I say, I think you need to move to Florida. (laughs) You know, that's the thing that's unique, see, for each person. It isn't, let's say, Colorado or Florida or New York or whatever. It's what that person was seeking and when it is right for them. I always say choose life. Choose what's life-enhancing for you and everybody else on the planet, and then amazing things happen that are not coincidences. No, they're not. I believe everything is meant for a reason. We're here to teach and learn, and in every situation, we're the teacher and, and the student. And, right. you know, just the way that you te- treat your patients, I mean, you've had so many wonderful experiences. And, you know, people are going to pass, and that's unfortunate. I work with cancer yeah. patients, too. But the experiences with them is, really makes a huge difference, and you grow from that alone. Now, I know that you have a seagull kit and I'm wondering oh, yeah. if you can tell us about it and why it's important for that. patients to have it. Yeah. Yeah. Because, Go ahead. I mean, again, some of it's my sense of humor. But let me say this. I try to help people. As I said, what changed me is helped me to live between office visits. 
because what I found is if you help people to live, the side effect is then living longer, you know, because of how they then feel about their life. But the Siegel kit, and this came from practical things. It's made up of a magic marker, a noisemaker, a water gun, and what I call vital signs. I mean, they're blank pieces of paper you can make a sign out of. Why do you want a noisemaker? A woman is eating, and again, I always say I never make up any of these stories. She's having a meal in the hospital, somebody I knew. She aspirates some of the food and was choking. She pushed the call button. Nobody responds. Uh, and and mm-hmm. that's, you know, a joke line. If you want an hour of uninterrupted silence in the hospital, push the call button. You know, because yeah. it's a joke that nobody comes. But thank God she had a roommate who ran out and got help and saved their life. And I said, you may not have a roommate. Have a noisemaker. Make a racket. Mm-hmm. Make noise so you get attention. Why do you want a magic marker? You go to the operating room. You write on mm. one side, cut here. You write on the other side, not this one, stupid. Because <laughs> you wouldn't, you know, you don't hear about the children who have their tonsils out who are there for eye surgery. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, or you, you operate on somebody's knee and it's supposed to be the other knee. I mean, it, it's just, uh, it's tragic, you know, when people, when doctors don't know their patients. But you right. want to leave a sign. And I'd say, or if your child is going for surgery, write on your kid's forehead. Here for tonsillectomy, you know, here for hernia mm-hmm. repair. I mean, let them know. And the water gun was brought into the hospital by a teenager. He had come to the hospital to die. I mean, he wasn't in conflict over that because of how he was feeling, what was happening. But his girlfriend, his family would visit, and he'd shut the door to have private time with them. And people would just push the door open and come in, you know. need to take the temperature, empty the wastebasket. I mean, you know, so what if you waited 20 minutes? And he would take out this high-powered water gun and drench them. And they, they learned, you see, there was a way of expressing anger, but he never hurt anybody. I mean, you know, and it became a joke because he put a sign over his bed, intern shot on sight. But when he died, the mother gave the gun to nurses who knew, give it to the kids to use. Why? Because they'd say to the kids, if anybody hurts you, you can squirt them. And that empowered the kids. They weren't afraid to go through anything then. And the last, what I call the vital signs, like that boy, put a sign on your door. If you want to meditate, if you want to relax, if you want to be with your family, put a sign on that says visiting with family, meditating, taking a nap, resting, do not disturb, you know, unless, you know, some important reason. And and just right. put that sign up and let people know. And I have to add that when you act that way, again, you become a person in the hospital. And they know you. I mean, somebody said to me, my grandmother's in the hospital and the nurses are beginning to look sick because grandma was driving everybody nuts. But you see, she was grandma. You know what I mean? That that she wasn't, you know, the gallbladder, the breast cancer, the whatever. She was grandma. And then you have a greater chance of surviving hospitalization. Hundreds of thousands of people die every year due to medical errors in the hospital. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. it's in the top 10 causes of death. But again, why does that happen? Because they don't know you and you don't speak up. So they come in, give you a treatment. You haven't said, why am I getting this? What is it? Um, You know, you're being a nice, submissive sufferer. That's the good patient. 
And so you could be killed by an error. But if you said, why am I getting that? Who is that for? Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd know if they were making a mistake. Right. And when I was in the hospital, I asked questions. They came in to do something. I said, what are we doing? What? What? Who's here? What? Right. And I'd ask right. questions. And I'd say, who are you? What are you doing? What do you want? What are you doing with that? I don't think I need that. You know, do you need painkiller? No, I don't. I had had um, a radical hysterectomy due to mm-hmm. ovarian cancer. And I left the day after. I had surgery at 7.30 in the morning on a Monday, and I was home by noon on Tuesday. The doctor wanted to keep me till Thursday, and I said, listen, I'm not staying until Thursday. As soon as you unpacked me, I was up helping Tawana in the next bed who didn't have a radical hysterectomy. No nurses are coming in because she's driving right. everybody crazy all night. I'm cleaning, you know, the puke pan. I don't need to do this. This is not what I should be doing. I can't take it. I'm going home. Besides, there's too many germs here. I'll catch something. I promise I'll be compliant. And they sent me home saying, you know, you can go up your stairs once and down your stairs once during the day, but no more than that. And I was very compliant because I didn't want to go back. That was like the reward. Right. You don't have to go back if you're good. <laughs> so I didn't. Well, you know, <laughs> if you'd been my patient, they would have just said, that's one of Siegel's crazy patients. Let her go home. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, oh, I operated yeah. on somebody one day, and that night I was giving a lecture in a nearby town. And I looked in the audience, and there was my patient. And I went over <laughs> to her. I said, what the hell are you doing here? She said, relax. The nurses said I was one of your crazy patients. And I wanted to go to your lecture, so they put all the tubes under my dress and helped me get dressed, and I came. And I mean, it was like, yeah, but I got used to that, and the nurses did too. You know, it became an affectionate term, if you know what I mean, Siegel's crazy. Yeah, oh, yes. (laughs) Because the nurses passed the word to other doctors too, you know, about what helped the patients and how to empower them. So uh, it it began to make a difference, because I always said, nobody's against success. You may sound right. crazy, see, and they'll say, I can't accept that when you're giving a lecture, you know, about it. Mm-hmm. But when they see it working, then that's different, and they begin to adopt all the things that you're doing because it works, and if it helps the patients, fine, we'll do it. Even if we can't explain, you know, why it's working, we'll do it. Yeah, absolutely. Bernie, I cannot believe this, but once again, we're almost out of time. Before we go, though, would you please tell everyone how they can purchase your book, The Art of Healing? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you can get it at bookstores and Amazon kind of thing. But on my website, it's Bernie Siegel, S-I-E-G-E-L, BernieSiegelMD.com. Also there, uh, run by our son and uh, his wife, is Wisdom of the Ages, that you can order it through them too. They're in Connecticut. Um, And so you can order the book through them or, as I said, uh, through the website and through different bookstores and so forth. And um, I think you'll find it. It's not just there are 70 drawings, so you'll learn a lot, even how to use it with your own kids and family. I always say, ask your children to draw a picture of your home and family. Tell them you want to put it on the refrigerator. You'll know how they feel about the family because the teachers in schools are always amazed when I would go over the drawings of the kids. And they say, <laughs> how do you know all that about their family? I said, it's in the drawing. And you'll know yeah. if your kids are happy or not and feels like a family. And as I say, um, you know, and then there's a lot of pages of my, I'd say, wisdom and experience um, to help you, uh, you know, and survivor behavior is what I call it, that if people do well, that's what you should be taught, you know, not the doctor saying, you're doing very well, keep it up. The doctor should say, what are you doing? I want to tell other patients. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've mm-hmm. learned, that everybody had their stories 
you put them together, even on the website, there's something called immune competent personality where you can question and know if you have that kind of personality. And there's a webinar with drawings too. I mean, there's a lot of things there and you can communicate with me through it too. It's very empowering. I went to your website, I saw it, I, the book, it's very empowering. People should do this because you'll learn an awful lot and you will become more aware yeah, of what's of, going on with yourself yeah, I was and just others. thinking, even, even the stories there, like Mother Teresa is saying, I will not attend an anti-war rally, but if you have, have a peace rally, call me. Because I try mm -hmm. to make a point to people that if you're trying to kill your disease, you're empowering the enemy. Your focus isn't on healing your life, it's killing my disease. But if it's healing your life, you know, like a peace rally versus an anti-war rally, it's a very different reaction and environment. And something you said earlier too, Joseph Campbell said it in his own way. When you're going through hell, say, what am I to learn from this? So use mm -hmm. your feelings. Hunger makes you seek nourishment. You don't like how you're feeling, just ask yourself, what nourishment do I need to bring into my life? Works every time. Thank you yep. so much, Bernie, again, for joining oh, me tonight. You, I'm so grateful for the work that you do and for sharing it all with us here at Energy Awareness Radio. And I intend you and yours a most fabulous holiday season and, and a new year that's abundant and only the very life, best of life's offerings. Thank you so very much. Thank you. You're welcome. You know, let's see. Next week we will have a show, people. I know it's Christmas night, but we will be here back again. So put it on your calendar so that you can tune in if you want or you can listen to an archive. For more information about me, please visit my website, quantumwellness.org. You will find a, an archive list of past shows, the lineup for upcoming shows, and a lot of information about other upcoming events I'll be hosting throughout the year. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at NRG Aware Radio. That's at NRG Aware Radio. I am your host, T-Love, here at Energy Awareness Radio, intending you and yours a peaceful, safe, and a very Merry Christmas. Remember, living from your heart is quite easy. You need only give thanks to do so. Within a city of 
Stop it. 